I'm seed eaters and alcoholic hive body. By merciful God, as I understand him on a daily basis, and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been sober since October the 21st, 1957. And to tell you, all of you here, that I literally went completely down the tube. We don't run into many bad drunks anymore like we were uh, when I come along. Oh, y'all kind of high class. <laughs> y'all didn't get with it, you know, like I did. And a lot of when I came along, get with it and where you lay on the damn ground, crawl around like a hog, all that kind of stuff. You know, that, you, that's, that's really alcoholism. Make a long story short again, though. I grew up on a one-horse farm over in Candler County. And my mother and daddy, they all drank the whole deal, drank his whole. My mother had five brothers. All five of them were alcoholics, because we never even heard the damn word. Four of them committed suicide, and the other one died in an automobile wreck. The four that committed suicide did it on account of embarrassment and humiliating the family. And the one thing that I know, again, I didn't happen, just happen to be an alcoholic. I don't know about y'all, did I had to work like hell to get to be one. <laughs> I grew up in Old Lion Primitive Baptist Church. Some of y'all don't know anything about it. Old Lion Hard Shell Primitive Baptist Church. I see somebody nodding their head. They preach that hellfire and damnation, and you're going to burn in hell forever if you do certain things. If you thought about it, you've done it. <laughs> I got out about 13 or 14, I began to think about some things. And I knew I was going to hell, you know. And I thought, well, if you're going to hell, you might as well try some of it. So I began to try some of it. I don't want y'all to know. <laughs> First drink of liquor I was ever given was between the juke joint in Vade, Georgia, Lyons, called a Trianon. And I come out of this juke joint, and the woman said, hey, fella, what you doing? I said, I'm out here partying. You drink liquor? I said, why, sure I do. Come here a minute. I walked over the car, and that's when he stuck his phrase on the side. Then y'all don't remember that, some of y'all. That tree on the side, and I walked over, and she had a... Half pint of ancient age. She opened the port, half up one glass, half up another. She handed me one half, hand, hand me one glass, heard it, and she turned it up and drank it. And I turned it up and drank it. I've had a drink for my life. I walked about 100 yards and fell like you'd shot me with a down 30 30, and liquor came, <laughs> <laughs> liquor came from everywhere. You know? And if you'd had any damn sense, think about it, you'd have said, I'll never do that again, you know? But hell, I worked at being learning how to drink. At quote, I became a good drinker. I don't want y'all worry. I came very. I used to be complimented by my wife on the fact that I drank like a gentleman. I didn't tell dirty jokes and I didn't fall down in the aisle, all that stuff. Of course, that was long before I got to the falling down stage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's the way it started off in the beginning. I married into bad blood, and then <laughs> in Emanuel County, I hear some of you guys say. I got drunk and hit my wife. Damn, if I ever been that drunk? Never. <laughs> if I'd have a little hand on that woman, she'd have put me in the local undertaker's office that night. And I'll tell you something that happened early in my drinking career with this woman. I come in one afternoon from work, was put on my clothes to take a shower, and she reached up in the top dresser drawer, pulled it out, and cocked a nickel-plated Colt 45 and had six bullets and stuck it right in my damn mouth. Said, tell me all about it. And I didn't know which it to confess to. <laughs> and I'm serious now. I'm not, I saw the whole damn funeral procession. I saw me in the casket. I saw the damn pallbearers. I saw it all. I knew I was gone, you know. 
My wife's an excellent pistol shot still is today. My first indication was jump through the window, but she'd shoot me right in the damn back. So I fell in the floor and began to do some things I became very good at. I began to cry <laughs> and to big and to pray. And the only thing that saved my life, I'm serious, I finally found out what she was talking about. And I said, I don't know why they picked me for to be with her. I said, hell, there's two other guys along too. Why should she single me out? You know what I'm saying? And that's the only thing that saved my life. I put some doubt in her mind what she thought happened didn't happen. And you know, if I'd had any sense there again, I'd have cut out the deal. I went to a lot of schools. I went to a lot of, been exposed like, to a lot of knowledge. Didn't keep a lot of it, but been exposed to a lot of knowledge. Went to school. I went to Citadel over in Charleston, South Carolina. Left there. Went to Atlanta Law School. Atlanta. Finished law school in 1941. Married my wife in 41. World War II broke out. And I joined the old Army Air Corps. Went through the Army Air Corps and became a fighter pilot. Early part of it, I flew P-40. Some of y'all remember the old Chinooks aircraft, P-40. Flew that early part of the war. Later got into P-47, the Thunderbolt. Flew that, no problem with drinking. Now drinking, but no big deal about any of it now. Drinking looking. Went through cleaning out in Oklahoma. Had one heck of a good time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Flying a jug. Got through that deal. Came out, went to work for the federal government in Atlanta, Georgia, as an adjudicator for the Veterans Administration. He knows what I'm talking about again. A judge of claims filed against the Veterans Administration and had a bunch of lawyers, young, that couldn't get a damn job anywhere, and a bunch of old ones that were drunks, you know. That's who worked for the government at that particular time. Had an ironclad rule. If you fell out of your chair, they fired you, you know. So you see a lot of them just kind of hold on in the chair in there, but I didn't have that. <laughs> I hope none of y'all lawyers didn't have that problem that time. But I went to work for the government. Doing this type of work, thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing, drinking liquor on occasions, and all big deal, no big problem about it at all. Now, I'll tell you one truth about it. I didn't have no problem at all. I was still flying for the National Guard. I had Dobbins Air Force Base. Had a wonderful time flying their airplanes. Thoroughly enjoyed that. I kept drinking that liquor, though, and, and I had a, we had a deal in Atlanta. We live in for the Veterans Administration. was uptown in. I'll never forget this long as I live. I had a special men's breakfast, I mean men's lunch every day. Had meat, two vegetables. Tea and dessert was a dollar and a quarter, and a double martini was a dollar and a quarter. And I'd, every day we'd have a double martini at lunch and all that kind of stuff. No big deal about it all, but I began to do this kind of thing. Kept drinking this liquor. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. No problem about it at all. Nothing had any problem with the wife at all at this particular time. I got checked out in Jets in 1948. And I look back on it again, I think sometime I had a real legitimate reason to drink a lot of liquor, you know. They put me in a jet, having never been in one in my life. There wasn't any two-seaters at that particular time. And they struck a match and lit the damn fire. <laughs> I'm sitting in it, you know, in this thing. And they, they sent a chase plane. All y'all have seen this, where they sent a chase plane behind the pilot. <clears throat> so I'm sitting in this airplane. They strike a match and light the damn fire. And they come and say, you ready to go? I said, I reckon so, Tower. And they turn me over to Tower. And I'm taxiing out. And the guy that was following me later made general. I was a captain time. Anyway, we taxied out at the end of the runway. And I got it. and said, you think you're ready to go, Carlos? I said, I reckon so. I reached up and pushed the power all the way forward and let her go. About halfway down the runway, this damn blue smoke began to boil between my legs. I thought, oh, God, it's on fire. And I snatched my glove off and ran it in the hand down between my legs. And the damn thing was cold. It was air conditioned. I didn't know it was air conditioned, but it's cold, you know. And I pulled it in the air. Going west like a bat out of hell. An old guy that was following directly comes to Collins. You better make a turn. You're already in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And if it wasn't one of the easiest airplanes in the world to fly, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't be talking to y'all tonight. You can fly a jet drunk as a cooler. I could sit about 35,000 feet when I brought up in in 1940. I'd just lay back and kind of relax, you know, have three or four drinks, just rest. You know, no big deal with nobody up there bothering you then. <laughs> Lord, 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 I'm working for the government, drinking a little liquor and doing things. And I used to, I, I look back in some of how stupid I could be. I used to take off from work. Take a military airplane, fly to Montgomery, Alabama, Maxwell Field, buy liquor through the officers' club over there, and take a day off from work, take an AT6 or whatever I could get and go and buy five or six cases of liquor from the officers' club. And I'd come back and tell Ida, I, had, I said, I saved 75 all day. And I spent 600 and something all, but I'd saved 75 all. <laughs> Something's wrong, you know. And I'd sit there and figure out how long that would last. I said, this will last October, now what am I going to do in November, you know. Well, this is the kind of stuff I'd got in the, into. But anyway, to make a long story short again, I got... Korean War broke out, and I was called active duty. Korean conflict. Went first out to George Air Force Base in California and came back to Fort Bragg up in the town, the headquarters up there, flying up there in the headquarters. There's a colonel up there, a good friend of mine. We drank a lot of liquor around, put on demonstrations to show people what... Air Force could do at this time. Live on the base, had a wonderful time flying, putting on these shows and all this kind of damn stuff, and we drank a lot of liquor and had a good time in this colonel. Anyway, I got orders to go into combat, and the colonel gave us a big farewell party at his house. I don't want y'all ever seen a fighter pilots have a party. That's the damnedest mess you've ever seen in your life. They chase each other's wife, throw each other in the pool, and the damnedest mess you've ever seen. We were over at his house, partied all night long. About 2 o'clock in the morning, the colonel came over and said, Colin, can you fly a B-25? I said, I'm the best damn B-25 pilot you've ever seen. <laughs> said, would you take me down to Lawson Field at Columbus, Georgia in the morning? I said, I'd be glad to. He walked off. I'd have come heard party. She, goes, she said, honey, you can't fly on no B-25. I said, hell, he's drunk and I'm drunk. Forget it. The party broke up by daylight and we went home right on the base, lived on the base. We done that. Parked the car and in the house getting undressed to get, take my clothes off and go to bed. And he pulled up across the lawn his Cadillac and hollered, Let's go! I slid the uniform, staggered out and got in the car. We drove down the flight line at Pope Field. Pulled up in front of operation. I looked out right in front of operation and there set a B-25. Now, I knew what a B-25 looked like. I'd seen them around the country. I didn't want to sit down there. <laughs> Sergeant came and saluted the colonel and said, the aircraft's ready to go. He said, Fine. So we staggered out toward the aircraft. I thought we was playing a game. I said, hell, we'll quit and go back to the office club and drink some more liquor. <laughs> Got out there and he said, you go first. I said, no, you go first. He said, no, you go first. I said, hell, I can't fly no B-25. He said, hell, you said you could. Let's go. I turned to the sergeant. I said, can you crank it up? He said, yes. I said, okay. He got in the right seat and cranked it up. I got in the left seat and buckled up. And the colonel got in the back and passed out. <laughs> He got the fans running. I looked around, amazed of instruments on a B-25. Some of them recognized, some of them didn't. <laughs> I said, where does the fuel main? He said, all fees off that main tank right there. I said, okay. I looked at that. I said, okay. So I called the tower, and they cleared about the end of the run. When we got in, I thought, there ought to be a lot to check on the B-25. There's a fighter, but I didn't know what to check. I just caught the brakes from my tool and pushed the throttle all the way forward, and everything went up into the green, as we say in the Air Force. And if it goes up in the green, that means it ought to go. But all went up in the green. I called the town and told them I was ready to go, and they cleared me out on action runway, and I poured the coal at B-25, and down the runway we go. About halfway down the runway, it occurred to me, this is a hell of a way to die. I wasn't even excited. This is a hell of a way to die, you know. <laughs> I pulled it in the air, 
turn left, hit it out, <laughs> Lawson Field out in Columbus. And if you're an alcoholic, you're going to understand the next remark about an hour out of Pope Field, liquor died out. <laughs> and it dawned on me that I was the damn pilot. I literally come apart, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do. I said, get that get that damn colonel back up in. Get him dry to help me laugh. I'm going to get this damn thing on the ground. Sergeant went back and tried to get him up. Couldn't get him up. He come back up and pulled up my headset. He said, the colonel said, come in over in the room. Went about 150 miles an hour. Chop the power and it should land. I went in Lawsonville, made a wonderful landing at damn B-25. We got out, went to the officer's club, and I had three double martinis and flew the damn thing back. <laughs> great, great, great. <laughs> Crazy, if you think about it. I went on up to Langley Field, went overseas. I'm going to try to cut this thing, get out of this war business. Anyway, went overseas with it. 75 pilots, a wing left Langley Field together. All us World War II boys, all married, all with families. Went over to the southern part of Japan again. We went down to Fukuoka. The reason I tell that sometimes there's someone in the crowd that was there. Anyway, I went, out, went around to Fukuoka and began to fly combat out of southern part of Japan. Now, some of y'all, I know one or two fellows here is in the Air Force. You know, if you're in the Air Force, the Air Force issues two ounces permission flown to all flying personnel in combat. They give you liquor, you know. And I got over and got in that damn deal. I began to drink liquor up there, and I'd go down for briefing. Briefing room just about twice the size. We'd go in there with our, you know, pad on and all this kind of stuff. Briefing officer, get up and pull down the maps and tell you where you're going, what you're going to do, and what ordinance you had and all that stuff. And the one thing he'd always say, now, if you get shot down, here's what you do. But the damn thing, that I, if we come in the, co in the briefing room, there's a coffee urn by. I don't know if there's any coffee or not in it, but called everybody drank liquor. We'd have a double shot of bourbon, get in and sit down and take them notes and go out and get in that F-84 and go north in the... Korea, drop those bums, and try to stay alive. And that's what I began to do. We left with 75 pilots from Langley Field. We killed 37 of them in seven months. They all World War II boys. A guy that slept two months down from me after we moved up into Korea had five children. I saw him hit the ground in the middle of Pongyang. One hell of a war. I drank liquor every day. I didn't have to do nothing but fly and unrest me. I drank liquor every day. I got up, reached down, grabbed a 40 ounce jug of fuel, and take it run right out of the bottle. I drank liquor every day and fly that F-84 and go north in the Korea and drop those 2,000 pound bombs, get rid of those rockets and try to stay alive. That's what I tried to do. And that was one of the damnedest things I ever got into in my life. I came over a full-blown drunk. I didn't put it time to know about alcoholism, didn't have any idea. I began to hemorrhage from the nose a lot because we were flying out of altitude. After we moved up into Korea to Tegu, getting a bleed a lot, and then when the flight surgeon was going to send me back from Tegu to Japan, the goal you to be operated on to stop the bleeding. We had a priest that went over there named Father Ford in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The reason I tell you that, he's a Catholic priest. And I thought, the world is men. They're going to send me back to Korea to Japan to be operated on. I went to see Father Ford. Now, listen to what I'm saying now. I said, listen, Padre, I'm going back to be operated on. Do you know the chaplain over in that hospital in the Goya? He said, no, I don't know the damn chaplain in the Goya. I don't know where the Goya is. I said, would you call over and find out who it is? and tell him to bring me some liquor once I get in the hospital. So he called over there, got the chaplain on the phone, said, I'm sending Collins a chaplain over there to be operated on. He's a Baptist in a hopeless case. Don't try to convert him, but bring him some liquor. 
And the day I checked in that hospital, this major came in with that crossbow, and he brought me a fifth of liquor every day I was in hospital. Now think about this, because evidently I must have known deep down subconsciously I was in trouble, because I'd have gone into DTs in a matter of 12 hours once they put me in the hospital with no liquor. So I got a fifth of liquor every day, and I drank a fifth of liquor every day and come out there. Went back to Korea and finished my tour and came home from there. A full-blown drunk. Didn't know it at the time, but it, I began to do things that were very obvious. This is hindsight now. I began to, when I went anywhere on a long period of went away to spend night, I'd be sure I had me enough liquor. I asked for transportation back by boat from Japan because I wanted to see if I could get off the liquor. But I didn't know what would happen, so I carried me 12 40-ounce bottles on board the boat with me out of Tokyo and come back on board the ship and I drank those 12, 40 ounces coming across the Pacific, coming back. I got San Francisco, came on, on the airplane out into two children. I had a son born while I was in Korea, C.D. the third. I came to Savannah, Georgia and out into two little girls met me down. The, my son was up there with the sister. They met me down and I had left the States weighing 127 pounds. I now weighed 185. I had a great big handlebar mustache that curled up on my eyes. And I drunk so much liquor, I could look straight out and see my cheeks. And uh, when I got off the airplane, I and them didn't recognize me, and I told her who I was, you know. And they didn't want to kiss me or nothing, you know. And that hurt my feelings, and on the way home, I got a fifth of liquor. And I drunk the first time I laid on my eyes on my son, C.D. third. Went back to Atlanta, Georgia, went back to work with the federal government up there, and began to have problems now showing up. I and I began to have a lot of problems. I began not come home for days and this kind of stuff. Get on these drunks and be gone four or five days. Anyway, she could no longer tolerate the situation. She left Mayweather, Georgia, where we were living at the time, and moved down to Statesboro, Georgia, and divorced me for habitual drunkenness. I'm not a nominal. If you ever in the Statesboro Courthouse, you can read about C.D. Collins. I'm a drunkard. It tells you right there on the record, official record. I'm a drunkard. So she divorced me. Now, if you're alcoholic, you need a wife. Who in the hell is going to keep your clothes clean and feed you and all this little stuff that we take for granted? I began to have all kind of problems with Idagon, you know, all kind of problems. So I moved <laughs> over to Birmingham, Alabama, and got over there and met this lady over there looking after me and drinking liquor over there and working for Social Security. I'd across the street from Social Security office in Birmingham was Lewis Grill. And Lewis Grill served him little miniatures. And y'all, all y'all know you, used, you, you get these breaks every morning. If you work for the government, you get a 10 o'clock cough break. We'd all go sit around these huge oak tables over and talk. I tipped all the waitresses a dollar every time they waited on me and got them to put me a double shot of bourbon in a coffee cup and put the cream and the spoon on the side. And I'd sit around this table with all these other men and we all talking. I'm blowing that liquor like it's hot and sipping it. Sip. <laughs> get me a double shot of bourbon at 10, another at 12, another at 3 in the afternoon and come out and get a half a pint of Seagram's B.O. for $2.20. Charged it. At the end of nine months, I owed Louie over $1,200 of liquor. And the good Lord, I think, intervened in my life. And y'all think about it again. Things begin to happen to C.D. Collins. I thank God. I'm in my office. I had to wear a coat and a tie every day. And two men came into my office one day in Birmingham. Told my secretary would like to see Mr. Collins. They come and said, Mr. Collins, would you ride downtown with us? I said, I'll be glad to. I told my secretary, I said, evidently they got some little case downtown in the local office they want me to look at. So we go out and get this plain black Ford and drive downtown in the middle of Birmingham, Alabama, pull up in front of this huge square building, and all get out. I stepped out, and I looked right above there and said, Birmingham Jail. I screamed like a stuck hog. Ah! And the guy picked me up. Walked right in the door with me. They took a picture in the front, a picture in the side, and fingerprints. None of y'all have ever been locked up, and I know that. But it's damn impressive, I'll tell you that. 
They put me in a bullpen just about beside this room with about a hundred guys in there. And none of y'all said they been locked up. When the jailer locked that door, I went got the coat and tie and walked off. Somebody said, boy, what are you in for? I said, the warrant said child support. I said, they're going to give you five years on the damn chain gang for that. I like to have a heart attack right then. Five years on the chain gang in Birmingham, Alabama. A professional bondman came down and got me out. I never did go back to my office. I came home to Mama. Now, Mama said the reason I drank liquor because I live with Ida. Well, I ain't got Ida no more, so I go home to Mama. And all you who are bad drunks experience this. I'd be coming to a bedroom in her house, and I'd hear my mom and daddy talking about me there in the other room. And I heard her tell my daddy that, Clifford, you load him up in that car, and you carry him down to Statesburg, Georgia, and whatever it gets, you get that woman to take him back. Because she's the only one mean enough to live with him. So my daddy loaded me up and brought me down to see this woman. And when she saw me, it was like pouring turpentine on a cat. Y'all seen cats jump up and down, you know, just jump down. <laughs> She'd just jump up and down and start cussing and waving arms and all that kind of damn business. And my daddy and my wife sat around the table in her dining room for five days negotiating about me, and I didn't have a damn bit of input in it. None. It boiled down to a money traction. My daddy paid her to remarry me. She said, it didn't pay me enough. I said, hell, I didn't have to do with it. Y'all want to talk about the money. I just sat and listened to y'all, you know. Boy, down the money, friend, I can eat pay. And she said, I'll remarry the star SOB. And she used what it said, SOB, she used it. I said, I may be an SOB, but I am not sorry. That's the worst word they call you in the South. Y'all know that, don't you? Sorry. SOB, I can handle fine, but I don't take sorry now, because I'll fight you about that. I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we're remarried. Never going to drink again. You know, when you liquor with the problem, never going to drink again. Make a long story short, I got a job at the Department of Transportation. About three or four months later, we went out and didn't know nothing about alcohol. We went out to get a meal one night. We thought, well, let's have one cocktail before we eat, and we did. This set the whole thing in motion again. It started back in when, buddy, when it started back, like all y'all know who alcohol is, it started back wide open now. Wide open. I began to charge liquor, write bad checks for liquor, do whatever necessary, and I didn't give a thing in the world what it took. I began to get with it now, get down with it. Now, I know none of y'all I can come out of Statesboro, drive seven miles out of town, where we call Pine Inn out there. There's a spot out there where I laid down in that grass one day to hide from the superintendent of the job. And I laid down, but I took my liquor down with me, which was a mistake, and I laid on that ground, kept drinking the liquor, and I finally decided I ought to get up and let people see me, but I couldn't get up. So I crawled around all day out there on the damn all board like a hog. You can't say, hey, aren't I having a good time? Aren't I a big shot, you know, doing that deal? But that's where it got with me. It got to that point in my life. And ladies and gentlemen, I wanted out. I didn't know any way out of it. I didn't know what to do or where to turn. And we read in the Atlanta Journal about a place that opened in Atlanta, Georgia, treated people who had a drinking problem. It's in the Atlanta Journal. And before I read this article, I want to say one more thing, because you all get a kick out of this. I, think. I got where well, I couldn't buy any more liquor and charge any more liquor, so I got on syrup liquor. I don't want you all know anything about syrup liquor. For farmers buying... Two sons of sugar month, they know damn well he's making liquor, you know, so they catch him. So what they began to do now, the farmers did, they began to use cane syrup in corn buck and distill it. Put the cane syrup in, distill it, and it comes out what's called syrup liquor. Same deal, proof is high and all that stuff. But the odor is terrible. If you sleep on a mattress, you've got to throw the mattress away. And the yellow jackets swarm around here to the outside. Get it. <laughs> I said, I said, it's crazy. on the river with this guy. Four dollars a gallon. Now, think about that. And think about it. Now, I'm serious again. I took my son over here a while back and showed him what. 
first drink of syrup like I took, I vomited. Second, I vomited second. I vomited the third time, and then the fourth one laid down. Once it lays down, then you can go with it, men on, you know. So, <laughs> but you're going to throw up, but about the first three or four drinks you take, you throw up, you know. But after it lays down, you're okay with it, and that's when I... Ida moved me out of the house and onto the back porch into a closet. Because she don't like this now. She said, it wasn't a closet. Hell, it wasn't a closet. A little woman about that big, and just a place for me to lay on the floor. And, I, and she had a maid who was looking after the children, and she was working, making a living, and I'm staying drunk. And I used to ask Dr. Bill Gray this a lot, you know. And I don't know why you guys ever bad drunk or not, but if you've been drunk a week or two, you don't have to breathe very often. You ever notice that? You, you can wait a while. <laughs> and the lady who was looking after the children, she'd look in that little window where I was laying, and she, she wouldn't see no mood. She'd go, she'd come, Mr. Collins, he's dead today. <laughs> don't worry about him. I'll check. I want to get home. Anyway, that's They'd come on and both get around peeving in the window, and I'd look at him sometime, maybe 10, 50 minutes. Say, maybe that son of a bitch is dead, you know. <laughs> Rick, I'd breathe. He's not dead. The son of a bitch may be dead tomorrow. That's where it was. That's where it was, gentlemen. That's where I was in my alcoholism. I went, and I wanted out, and I didn't know what to do. And well, I went to Atlanta, Georgia. Went to the Georgia Alcoholic Clinic under Dr. Vernell Falk. We talked about her today. And found out something about alcoholism and what I could do. I stayed up there. Had a 28-day program, man, and they extended me, and I told him i got to get out of here. i got to go to work. What have you been doing? Well, I've been drunk for the last year, so to make a long story short, I stayed and went. When I came out of there, I got a job. I had to file for the second divorce. Told me never to come back to Statesboro. I went back down to Statesboro, and I slept in a basement of a hotel down. I paid $5 a week for a room and had my clothes in a cloth bag. I got a job cutting grass for $295 a month. And I hope and pray to God I never forget all this. And I didn't have a car, didn't have anything in the world. My father had cut me completely loose where I didn't have no money. And I had to hitchhike back to cut this grass every day. And that got my attention too. My daddy eventually found out what I was doing. My wife recognized the fact that I was trying to sober up. And so she, after a period of three or four months, we're not sure about time, she told me I could move back in the house with her and the children. I did. They got AA started in Statesburg, Georgia. A woman got it started. Had the sheriff take her husband to Savannah, Georgia. He went out to one meeting and they got a group started. And there's four of us attended that first meeting. And I'm the only one left of the original bunch. The rest of them are dead. But we got A.A. started in Statesboro, Georgia. And I began to become a part of this wonderful fellowship. And to tell you today, something a lot of you will not believe in time. But I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I found a way to live where I'm okay with C.D. Collins as a result of being in this recovery program. I'm okay with me. I'm not paranoid anymore. I'm schizophrenic, all that stuff. And when I was drinking, look, if I saw you and you were a preacher, I'd preach a little. If you were a hell raiser, I'd raise hell. You know, I want to fit with whoever, and I wanted to impress you. I didn't give a damn what it took to impress you. I tried to impress you. But I know who C.D. Collins is today. I'm basically a decent human being, and I don't cheat, lie, and steal, and do all the things I used to do, and I haven't done for years. I know today I can't go back to the cheating and lying and stealing and all that stuff that I did. I'm involved in this recovery program, and I've done devoted my life to it. We have four children, two girls and two boys. Two of the children are alcoholics in the recovery program, my son and one daughter. And the other two, I've tried to get the other two to drink, but they don't want to drink. I said, drink where well, you can get in the program. They won't drink. <laughs> drink some liquor. We can, oh, Dad, I don't want to get in. I said, hell, drink some liquor, you know. Well, unless you've been around like I have, been in the program I've been in Statesboro, Georgia, it's a status symbol in Statesboro to be in the A program. Y'all know, too, we're the capital of the world per capita. 
You know that, don't you? We've got six groups. We've got 68 meetings a week in that town. Of 20,000 people. We've got the elite there. It's more, it's more of a South Central B&A than it is the Rotary Club, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I got involved in this thing. I've been doing it ever since. I've got the two children in there staying sober now. My son who they said would not live, the medical profession called us in when he's, in, he's on the dual deal. It, when I came along with no drugs, he got on drugs and alcohol, and they told us he was going to die, me and his mama. And we didn't pray for him to live. We prayed for God's will in his life. And the boy finally wanted out, and he got into recovery, and he's been sober over 15 years now. He has a family. Family. And, and four children. And he and I have a relationship I want to take a million dollars for. And I gave him that white chip in the I said, I want to take one million cash dollars for what I'm doing. And he picked up that white chip. Well, you can understand. I got a relationship I never would have had otherwise. He called me up to come by and see me and Mom and tell us he loves us. Thank God again for what the AA program has to offer. It's a way of life. And to tell all of you here, all of you special, I'm talking to one of you. If I touch one individual tonight in what I say, and the good Lord has answered my prayers. I got on my knees over in that cabin before I left and asked God to put the words in my mouth because I don't know what I'm going to say when I get up here. Well, cut story. And if I touch one individual, it's been worth what I'm doing up here tonight. And I've been talk because all of y'all have heard me and all of y'all know me and I'm not trying to impress anybody to tell you what I went to. But as a result of being an alcoholic, I found a way to live where I'm comfortable with C.D. Collins. I'm comfortable with me. And have been for a long time. I can look anybody in the eye, and I'm as good as you are, not any better than, you know. I've been caught a hundred times by the state patrol since I have been sober. They call me, Mr. Scholar, you're a speeder? Yes, sir, give me a ticket, I can pay it. You know, they don't throw me in the back seat no more. I like that. You know? So that's the freedom we got, is the freedom in this thing. And it's been an asset to me and to tell all of you who are new in the program, now, not you, old you in the program, it's going to be an asset to you being an alcoholic around the detriment. It's an asset to you. I've been everywhere in the United States. You can go in Canada and everywhere else as a result of being an alcoholic. That's all. Not a damn thing about my education and background. I'm an alcoholic. Come, we're glad to have you. Glad to have you. Now, you'll never find that in any other fellowship in the world today. Been out to Hollywood with the movie stars and all that and seen them, and they accept these old redneck crackers. They couldn't understand what we were saying, but they like to hear us talk. You know. Talk to them. <laughs> but we had a ball of air to tell you all of y'all got some wonderful, wonderful living ahead of you. And I'm still working very much with young people, people young in the program today. I do it every day. I go to six meetings a week, at least every week, talking to young people who are just beginning to sober. A lot of young girls, young, because most of them are dual addicted now. You run into that all the time. And I kind of resent it because I didn't get to sniff and all that stuff and shoot all that stuff at y'all all. I told him, I said, I wish I could have tried a little. said, you would have never made it, Collins, you know. <laughs> but that's the way it is today, you know. But you see them in the saying, it's a wonderful way to live. The program of recovery is a wonderful way to live. I found a high power in the A program that I never found in my church. I still go to church in Sunday school every Sunday. And I minister in my church. I'm a first Baptist now. He said, we ought to be more like Alcoholics Anonymous. He's meant to set the photo half a dozen times. I want to be more like, hey, but think about it. You go to church on Sunday, you shake hands. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing fine. You're young, you can be in jail. Your wife fixing the abortion. You ain't about telling about that stuff. I'm doing fine, Mr. Collins. I'm like, great. But in this fellowship, we help one another. It's the greatest fellowship in the world today is what we're involved in. I hope you all know, I know all you old ones do know what I'm talking about. There's nothing in the world compared with what we have. 
Our minister said many times we ought to be more like alcoholics anonymous in the Baptist church. We ought to be more like a help one another in, in the Greek code. That's what we still do in a day. And to tell you that I'm still much involved in it, still doing what I know to do on a daily basis today, one day at a time. And I got on my knees before I came over here and asked the good Lord, let me say something to somebody. I might touch one individual in here tonight. If I do, then it's been worth my time being here. Well, most of you all have heard me before. And to tell you that I'm still flying airplanes, and by the way, I'll, I got to tell you one or two more things. I don't want to keep you too long. <clears throat> Plenty of All right. <laughs> well, now the divorce me, uh, what you, I still flying up in Atlanta. And drunk in this bar one night in Atlanta, I told this lady, I said, you want to go up and jet? Yes, sir. I said, go on. I took her to one night, go out to the Air Force Base. I this lady, and back then, there wasn't no women around. This was back in 19, about 52. Put a hair all up under him and put a G-suit on and put the whole deal on. I went there. Told her, and I said, give me 972, and he gave it to me. What time are you going off? I told him right now, an hour and all that. But I had to sign the damn clearance. I'm so drunk, I couldn't sign it. But I just kind of do like a doctor's signature, you know. Went off, and anyway... They turned it over to the colonel. I took this lady up in the jet. No big deal. He's airplane the world fly. Went and flew it around. Had a big time. But when I come back for duty the next time, the colonel called me and says, Is this your signature? I said, Yes, sir. I said, You drinking? I said, Yes, sir. I drink. He said, Well, I'm going to court-martial you. I said, Well, hell, I flew 100 missions drinking. I don't know why you want to court-martial me now. He said, I'm going to court-martial you. You can't drink in my outfit. But he said, since you've been in two wars, I'll let you resign your commission. He typed it up and made me sign it right there, and I resigned my commission. Walked out, I lost every damn thing. I lost that. I lost my deal in the legal profession. I lost a wife. I lost it all. But to make a long story short, reason I tell you this is when I got sober, I applied to get back in the military. And they turned me down in the state of Georgia. And like all good alcoholics, I don't take the word no, so we all went to Atlanta, I mean, went to Washington, D.C., and I talked to a four-star general up there in the Pentagon and told him my story. I've been sober five years in. He said, Mr. Connor, you go back and reapply. And I come back and reapply, and I flew for the guard till I was 60 years old. How about now? I went, I went through helicopter school when I was 53. And they thought I was crazy as hell. I was when I got out there. I thought I looked like the rest of them in the class. They're all in their 20s. You know, they looked man at me. How old are you? I said, who? He said, you. I said, 53. He said, what in the hell are you doing here? I said, I'm going to helicopter school. He said, you must be crazy as hell. I said, I am. But anyway, I want to go, you know. <laughs> I went through chopper school, got through that. And some of y'all know my good friend Ernie Vanderbilt was actually general and governor. He and I were very good friends. Still are today. But make a long story short again. I come out of helicopter school, I called Ernie Vanderbilt. I said, Ern Ernie, how am I going to get back to Statesboro to Winder? Get your helicopter and carry it home. So I went out and got me a helicopter and brought it to Statesboro, Georgia, and landed in my backyard. <laughs> damn city police come out, state patrol, lights going every damn way. What's wrong? I said, nothing. I just stopped to get some coffee with Ida. And I landed in the backyard every day, and I flew all the neighborhood. I took up all the women. You're a taxpayer. I thought, hell, you ought to be able to fly. And I took women up with the little babies in the army. <laughs> took everybody in town up that military helicopter. Kept it down there for years. You know, flew it. Quite a deal. And, of course, you can't do that stuff now, buddy. Not in the military anymore, that deal. But I flew everybody that wanted to fly, and it took chief police up, sheriff, anybody want to go in that helicopter. And I landed up there and get my hair, landed up at the ball at the mall and go in and get my hair cut and come out and get in and fly it on. <laughs> But 
I tell you the reason I'm telling you a lot of this stuff again. When I got <coughs> after I retired out of guard, I bought me a super decathlon. Any old, it's an acrobatic airplane, fully acrobatic. The wing is symmetrical, has much left upside down, the right side up, has inverted fuel, inverted oil. I bought me a super decathlon and began to put on shows over town there. And the police began to take pictures and file claims, and I had, of course, chief police and I were good friends, and didn't have much problem, but they began to file a claim with a damn FAA, you know, about my upside-down flying over town. <laughs> and the head of FAA out of Atlanta called me, said, Mr. Collins, what's your license number? And I told him. I said, what's yours? He told me. I said, hell, we both about the same age then. We both about 150,000. That's our license number. We talked every day for a week, every day. And we kid said, I'm not going to bother you. You know what you're doing. Forget it. And they let me put on show right on over town. <laughs> and the city got it. They didn't like it coming over town upside down. But I, they used to tell it that Willie Wynn Hospital says the only place you go to and see an air show was Willie Wynn Hospital. <laughs> well, I'd put on show in that, heli- uh, in that, in that super decathlon. It was the finest airplane in the world. You could roll on his back and go to Jacksonville if you want to upside down. It makes a difference. <laughs> loops and rolls, whatever you want to do, it'd do it all, you know. And somebody called my wife, because I was coming over upside down a lot, rolling on the ground, said, he's going to get killed. She said, he's got a lot of insurance. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I tell you all all this crazy stuff, it's talk like I never made before, to tell you is that that's the thrill of getting sober and being chemically free where you can look anybody in the eye and you're all right. You're all right with it, you know. I don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed anymore about anything. And the woman that hated the ground I walked on it started to kill me. Of course, I got a woman that will still kill you. You know, I'm serious. I never ever hit her. If I ever hit her, the local undertaker would be cleaning me up, you know, at night. Because she don't, couldn't, couldn't handle that. She's come from bad blood. And, uh, <laughs> but I have a relationship with that woman today I want to take $10 million for. We, we have learned to communicate. We've learned to talk. And the thing that I've done, just like a lot of you others have gone through, and a lot of you had problems with your wife, children, all this stuff, I come back and made amends to them, began to try to be a decent husband, have been one for years now, and I love the woman very dearly, and she loves me. We ride down the road, and she's sitting next to him and holding my hand, and everybody says, of course, she's good looking. I bet that's not his wife. Look at that good looking woman sitting there, little old man. But that's my wife sitting there with me, you know. I like that. My wife sitting with me. So we've had a wonderful, wonderful life as a result of being in this fellowship. And to tell all of you, for God's sakes, do what you knew to do on a daily basis. It's still one day at a time, me. I'm still sober today. Not tomorrow, today. And the thing that I've been since I've been sober, we've had death in the family, money trouble, job trouble, child trouble. We've had it all in this last 40 years. I have never entertained the idea, well, I need a drink of liquor, I ought to go get me a drink. It's never occurred to me to do that. Never. Never. I've done a lot of praying, some crying, all this kind of stuff. But not that. I've never thought about returning to that kind of stuff. And to tell you who are new in the program, for God's sakes, grasp the program and do what it says do. Because let me tell you what I've seen. Some of them might be saying this wrong. Let me tell you what I've seen. A world of people die from alcoholism and drug addiction since I have been sober. I came down the street in Statesboro, Georgia, Georgia about six, eight months ago. Now, one street there, I counted 14 people that died down that street from alcohol addiction and drugs. And the thing about it, three died out of one family, and the fourth one's fixing to die, young boy, on drugs and alcohol. But the thing that we know again, you know, if you've got children there again, and we've been through this, if you've got children, they own it. Sometimes you have to take the damn bull with a horn with that deal, you know, with children, and, and do something about it. Put them somewhere and get them off everything, you know. Get them off it where they want to. 
So we ran in that with our two children, but they're both sober today. They've been sober for a long time. But to tell you that, that, that you have a disease that will kill you. It will kill you. You have a terminal illness. And what I do, I sit in a meeting every morning. There's about 35, 40 people in it, 1130 in Statesboro. So if you ever die and they come to that meeting. And I tell them, I said, look around you, and I count them and look at them. And come back six months later and look again. Look again and say, I'm in this missing. I'm in this missing. I'm in this. Don't get it. And I never at all, that's what I try to impress on people. I'm, trying, I'm still committed to one day at a time doing what it says to do on a daily basis, every day. I go out to get the mail. I ask the good Lord to keep me sober. And I get on my knees at night and thank Him at night. Every day. That's my routine for me, see so to tell all of you who are in you and you, for God's sake, get a hold of it and do what it says to do. The portion that we read about in the opening of every meeting, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who is thoroughly followed our past. Tom Powers wrote that. And the thing, and I heard him talk at a state convention in Augusta, Georgia in 1958, and the thing that he said, I grasped it like a down and dying man. He said, the program works under all conditions. If you do what it says do, you will not go back to the stuff. And I grabbed it like a drowning man, and I've held on to that since, and I found that to be true. Because, as I said, we've had all kinds of problems since getting sober, but I've never entertained the idea of going back. And to tell you, if you're new in the program, for God's sakes, do what it says do on a daily basis. I found a way to live where I'm comfortable with C.D. Collins, and I can look C.D. in the eye. I'm okay with me. And the one thing that I've found, and I, I know all of you and you know, know what I'm talking about, I found a real meaning of love, L-O-V-E, love, in the AA program. Love is the most used and misused and abused word in the English language. Think about it. I love my cat, love my car, love my dog, I love my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, love, love. The real meaning of love is to love another human being without asking anything in return. Nothing attached. I found the real meaning of it. I've told a lot of people, I love you. I said, I don't love you. I said, that's okay. You know, I understand that. That's your problem. But I love you. I'm going to keep loving you. know. <laughs> found a real meaning of love in this program. When I died, somebody walked by the casket and say, old C.D. Collins tried to help me while he was alive. That's the highest compliment you can pay a human being. That's the highest compliment you can pay a human being. I'd rather you say that about me than erect a statue of me on the square in Atlanta, Georgia. And as a young man, I had a lot of ambition to be governor of the state of Georgia. Had the connections at one time, had it all at one time. I had letters from Edison Arnold while I was in Korea. was going to point me attorney general when I come back, but I come back a drunk, so that took care of that. But anyway, let me tell you what. I had rather be where I am today than be governor of the state of Georgia. I'd rather be doing what I'm doing. I have some inner peace that I thought I never would have. I had a relationship with my wife and my children and my fellow man. There's no way you can put a badge on it. Thank you, gentlemen, for listening to me. I <laughs>